This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we're talking about private schools and how they fit in the national school reform conversation. My guest is Jeff Sindler, head of school at Burgundy Farm Country Day School in Virginia. Prior to his time at Burgundy Farm, Jeff led a year-round school for boys in under-resourced neighborhoods in Baltimore, Maryland. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for being here. Hi, Allison. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. So I wonder if you would start... If we could just start by talking about the history of private schools. I, I know that private schools were this nation's first schools before the government could make public schooling a priority and designate public funding to educating its citizens. And as they grew in prominence and in the perception that they were that private schools were accessible only to the country's elite, they also in many areas provided refuge for white families running from forced desegregation. Will you talk a little bit about that history? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a deep history, as you said, of independent schools dating back uh, to the 18th century, at least, and probably the 17th century as well, when you think about the oldest independent schools in America. Uh, you know, schools, obviously, when they're generated uh, privately, spring up to serve a very mission-focused purpose, uh, whether it be faith-based, uh, which was often the case uh, then and now across the centuries, or whether it be to address a certain age group or a certain kind of learner or, or any demographic that you choose. And uh, Burgundy, for instance, was founded by some local preschool parents in northern Virginia in the uh, mid-40s, around the time of the end of the Second World War, because they didn't like the public school options. And uh, contrary to a lot of uh, independent schools that sprung up in the South, they wanted a school that was going to be um, religiously and racially diverse, and so they had the first uh, uh, diverse, racially diverse school in Virginia in 1950. And um, uh, so any number of reasons contribute to independent schools bringing up. And I, you notice I use the term independent because uh, I think in the 21st century, most independent schools, I'm sure not all, don't want to give off the R of being uh, so exclusive uh, anymore that they really want to be welcoming, and um, and so that term is preferred. Okay. We just saw the Supreme Court rule in its Fisher versus Texas decision that diversity is still a compelling interest in higher education, um, and of course that has trickle down effects for K twelve education as well. And I'm I have to admit I'm a little troubled with the um contemporary conversation about diversity. Part of the message it seems about diversity, certainly as the law is treating diversity these days, is that diversity is some kind of charity for students of color. And I think that's a mistreatment of the true concept of diversity, which is that diversity in classrooms and in, in daily life is a benefit for every one of us. 
how do you and and how does Burgundy Farm define diversity? Well, personally, uh, I think our school well, would fall in similar lines. You know, diversity really broadly is just what makes us all uniquely who we are, and it's 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 much deeper than race and background, but it's certainly very much inclusive of those physical characteristics uh, that may be noticeable. But it's intellectual, it's cultural, it's social, emotional, it's family and personal history, and uh, you know I think that most um, institutions of higher learning and most independent schools uh, and the best public schools, as you suggested, crave uh, at least certain kinds of diversity because it makes the educational experience much richer. Uh, how can it be a rich educational experience if we're all alike, whether we're all uh, low income? white Hispanic or African American students in the inner city or rural school somewhere or whether we're independent school students uh in the most um, uh expensive independent school in New York City, uh if everyone sitting around the table brings only uh one very similar experience, then uh you know, our opportunities are compromised and I think especially in a world where uh it, there seems to be a lot of need to be more connected and more aware of the many differences, and certainly the workplace, by definition now, needs to respect a lot of different kinds of diversity that once weren't even um, visible or, or talked about. So uh, I think you know we all have a great um, responsibility to think about what diversity is in our schools. So talk about how diversity is achieved. Do you work with other independent schools to to recruit diverse students and retain them? How, what is your, do you have a diversity plan? How do you achieve diversity? Sure. Well, many of the schools, not all, but many independent schools have someone who's literally assigned to be a point person for diversity initiatives and diversity concerns, diversity plans. But I would say most uh, schools, like many businesses now, um, make sure that diversity is one of their core values and, and has a place in any strategic thinking. So we're we're out there recruiting to be able to achieve diversity in our student body and, of course, in our faculty and staff ranks as well. And so where you choose to advertise, where you choose to show up for fairs, uh, how you go about that, of course, all these things have an impact. We have a great history in terms of uh, belief in racial diversity but uh, just being black and white, as it were, is only part of the equation. So we're proud of that history, but there are a lot of uh, aspects of diversity that we still need to do a lot of work with. And um, access is one thing. Opening your doors and saying we're open or welcoming to all is step one. But as you know, there's a lot more uh, to really achieving a diverse and inclusive community that retains people and that, and that perpetuates what you're after and your mission. That uh, I think that speaks to um, the movie American Promise, which is a documentary. I, I have not yet seen it, but from what I understand, it shows that we have a lot of work still to do on race in this country, and the focus is one of those very expensive private schools in New York. Uh, the filmmakers follow their own son and his best friend, two black boys, on their journey through Dalton School in New York, and while there, the boys had to combat some very negative stereotypes about black men and boys and confront painful questions about their identity. 
as they also grappled with the very normal coming-of-age growing pains. What are your thoughts about the work still to do in independent schools to welcome and nurture students of color and students who don't fit the historical profile of a, a private school student? Yeah, I think that the, the effort to diversify, as I said, is so much more than just saying you're welcome or even here's the scholarship if there's a financial aspect to the equation. Uh, meeting students and families where they are and for who they are is really the core of the question. I think this is the great challenge. Uh, you you want to have relationships, of course, and, and trust uh and a sense of community developing that feels very inclusive and welcoming for everybody. And uh, a lot of work has to go into that. So uh, when I spent 10 years in Baltimore preparing kids from very challenging backgrounds where a few parents had graduated from high school, much less college, or attended independent schools, and sending these boys off to uh, independent boarding schools, even Catholic schools, selective college prep high schools in Baltimore City, public schools, uh, there's a cultural gap there and an experiential gap. And whose responsibility is it to bridge that gap? If the institution doesn't take very seriously the need to energetically anticipate what some of these um, needs might be to help people uh, bridge over and then realize that it's not a one-sided reach, but it's it's uh, it's got to be joint. And I've seen a lot of struggles there, of course, in the hundreds of boys that I sent on to independent schools. Uh, it takes a lot of work on all sides, and it's amazing how many touches from different individual people sometimes can be required in order for just one student to successfully make that uh, that that bridge or that jump. Uh, and it's not because one uh, culture is better or worse. It's simply the reality that if, if I'm coming from uh, a foreign country, we'd easily anticipate some of the needs that a student might have in order to be successful. When a student comes from a culturally diverse background in our own country, sometimes we're just a little bit more blind. Mm-hmm. And you do have a very unique background, having worked in in Baltimore and um, now working at the independent school in Virginia. So you have seen you know, two ends of the spectrum in terms of resources and need. Um, and, you know, you and I have talked about how there are a lot of similarities on those opposite ends of the spectrum. Will you talk about that? Well, I think one of the topics that we discussed is just the kinds of neglect that kids encounter. And, uh, the, you know, a, a Baltimore City student who's uh, being raised by his aunt or his grandmother who's working maybe more than one job and taking care of several children, uh, oftentimes has to fend for him or herself a bit more than uh, one would normally anticipate for a child of that age. Uh, Sometimes at the other end of the spectrum, the neglects look more benign, but they're still just as real. Uh, The parents are consumed in their careers uh, uh, as well, maybe for very different reasons, and uh, children are left to their own devices. And uh, it's remarkable, really, what the, the parallels are. Children are children, whether they're public or independent school kids or whatever socioeconomic background. They've got the same needs, and if those needs are tended to, kids are in good shape, and if they're not being well attended to, then, uh, then you're going to encounter challenges. Mm-hmm. So I think the next, the next 
frontier in uh, civil rights advocacy is is poverty and addressing especially concentrated poverty uh, in in black and Latino communities, uh, Asian communities, white communities, and, and really bridging that racial gap by dealing with poverty and addressing the needs that poverty brings. How does how does Burgundy Farm work to address poverty or to do outreach to communities that are that don't receive as many resources as other other communities? Uh, in various ways, and I'd say we're similar to other schools in some respects and unique in others. But uh, for a small school with an eight or nine million dollar budget, we have about eight hundred fifty or nine hundred thousand dollars of financial assistance for tuition, the majority of which goes to uh, children from diverse backgrounds, racially and socioeconomically diverse backgrounds. We uh, host a program called Emerging Scholars, which is an upward bound style program. It runs over 14 months for uh, fourth and fifth graders. It runs through a school year and two summers, and we have about 50 students on campus right now as I speak who are here every day for a six- or seven-hour day in the summer and on Saturdays during the school year. And this uh, is a program that holistically prepares them for college prep selective, usually independent school uh, experiences for middle school and high school so that they'll be college-bound. Uh, at Burgundy, uh, I'm also involved with a um, public-private partnership, a D.C. public-private partnership that's just getting underway where we're trying to create a level playing field for exchange of ideas uh, among teachers, among administrators, among parents, among students, so that we can diversify our own backgrounds and experiences, but also capitalize on the knowledge and experience of others. And uh, this is a very interesting and compelling project that uh, seeks not to uh, put independent schools in the position of reaching down to uh, under-resourced, potentially under-resourced public schools, but sharing with on a more partner basis, and um, it's just getting underway. But I think these kinds of efforts, uh, in the end, focused on what's best for children from all backgrounds and in all schools, that uh, that do make a difference. Mm-hmm. So where do you think that independent schools fit in the larger national conversation about school reform and about serving every student with equity? Do Do independent schools have a role to play in that conversation? I think they, they do, and they can have a, a, a larger role. Uh, you know, What's complicated here in terms of uh, magnifying the role of independent schools is that they're tuition-driven, and in most communities, uh, public schools are paid for for uh, any child, and independent schools are not. In other words, there's not a voucher program or other revenue source to allow for ultimate school choice. Um, I think a lot of us would be strongly in favor of dollars following students to the best schools for those students. And uh, a lot of kids are stuck with one or two options that look very similar because larger public schools, uh, just by definition, are offering more of a one-size-fits-all approach. And independent schools, by definition, have flexibility, a different kind of accountability, more of a, a customer service accountability. In other words, if the value proposition is not holding and parents don't think that the perceived value is larger than the perceived cost, they don't show up at the doors for independent schools. But with that flexibility 
um, comes the ability maybe to be a little bit more student-centered and to uh, think about more easily what's best for kids at the core, whereas the bureaucracy of public schools is um, is focused more on a, an accountability toward test scores and churning out through an antiquated system a product um, that may or may not be best for kids. You know, speaking of accountability and and testing, what does and you know we we've seen a movement I think of teachers and students and parents really standing up and speaking out against testing and the high stakes standardized tests that are uh, proliferating in K twelve education uh, that are even now beginning to trickle down into early childhood education and. Students, especially, are walking out of these tests. They're refusing to sit down and, and bubble answers that that aren't diagnostic measures of their progress, but are instead designed to be assessment and accountability tools um, to to hold teachers accountable for you know teacher hiring and firing and and uh, for that that are really more punitive than helpful. Um, what is what does student assessment look like in the private school environment? Sure. Well, first, if there's a small editorial comment, I'd say, you know, the, the concept of a no child left behind philosophy, of course, we can all recognize as um, something that uh, at its heart is concerned with the, with the dignity and opportunity for every every child. Uh, the problem is, of course, in the implementation of it. And in independent schools, the approach is... Um, has the, the flexibility to be uh, not standardized for number one, and and, and that standards driven. So rather than a mile wide and an inch deep, hoping to measure uh, a breadth of, of content, either skill content or or actual content, independent schools can offer more of a performance based, demonstration based assessment approach with more projects, for instance, or more. Uh, team approach to, to uh, demonstrations of learning. Um, obviously, some traditional assessments mixed in um, because it's an important part of preparing kids as well. But it's mostly a lot of flexibility and a lot more ability to think about what are we actually trying to get out of this. Uh, and, and, and independent schools, I think, are thinking much more whole person. Uh, they also have the luxury on average of having students who come in um, better prepared. So yeah, sometimes flexibility comes with also with um, who, who you're working with. And uh, I think the art is to figure out how can we put some of the best methods that are very student-centered and student-friendly into the bigger public school systems and take the risk of really backwards planning with what's best for children rather than thinking about putting out some sort of a product that's largely just that's really data concerned. Uh, you know, what does it look like when we have all the kids scoring uh, well on these standardized tests? Well, we may or may not have kids who are ready for college or ready for the real world. Uh, they, they may be able to show that they can read and write and do math uh, more effectively, but the times are changing, and the assessments in independent schools, I think, are trying to um, trying to uh, keep aware of that. So what are some of the, the similarities between public school, I wouldn't say students, but let's say between public schools and um, 
independent schools. Um, so not necessarily the the student population, but what are the, the similarities in terms of what you provide to your students, and then how do mm -hmm. institutional barriers contribute to mm -hmm. gaps between independent schools and public schools? Right. Well, let, let's start with the students just for a second and say that, well, on one sort of superficial level, the students may look quite different. The reality is you've got approximately, in my experience, and I've worked in the Baltimore City Schools for a several-month period, you've got approximately the same percentage or proportion of straight-out genius kids who are somewhere in an average level of intelligence and readiness for school and, and children who are going to have some major challenges of one sort or another, whether they're social, emotional, or academic, or often a combination. Obviously, what's different is the approach. And as I said a minute ago, independent schools, by uh, by by their mission, by definition, oftentimes are taking much more of a whole child approach and really thinking about what are the needs, the total needs of the child. Public schools, although there are many exceptions, and you hate to, hate to make any statement about public schools, that's a one-size-fits-all, but on the whole, uh, for various reasons of accountability, uh, they really can't afford to take uh, a truly student-centered approach. And in, in cycles where we've tended toward character education, let's say, or some manifestation of more of a whole-child approach, uh, eventually we get burned and we come back around to, um, you know, to something that's more uh, standards and accountability driven. The problem is that they need to be integrated, and I think that um, in um, the better public schools and the better independent schools, both, you see an effort to um, to teach things in context. If you go to a tiny school, for instance, in rural uh, Vermont, it may be a public school, but uh, the size of the school and some other dynamics uh, encourage uh, a student needs first approach. In a huge public school of 2,000 children in one of our bigger uh, cities, it's very difficult to take that approach. You know, it's a class of 35 children uh, of, with all kinds of needs. You haven't even really uh, been able to address what's the diversity within that classroom. You know, ultimately, an independent school and a public school don't differ in the sense also that you're trying to uh, serve a narrower range of abilities in one classroom. A public school has a special education program, for better or for worse. All different kinds of special needs can be addressed. An independent school is only going to accept a narrower range you know, that, that those of those efforts ultimately can serve students well. It's defining where you differentiate and how, you know, when it's possible to have an inclusive classroom and when it's better to offer pull-out or uh, services or full pull-out. Um, you know, those those kinds of distinctions are being made in both types of schools. Mm -hmm. So do you actively recruit for special needs students, and how do you serve them? Yeah, I would say we we actually we actively recruit uh, more of a, a range of, and I would say this is typical of most independent schools that aren't serving a special needs niche, but average to above average academic ability kids. Within that, there's a range of social, emotional, and academic needs. Um, whether you have some kids on an autism spectrum, uh, potentially diagnosed or not, or with attentional issues or math or um, language-based uh, disabilities or differences, 
you know, that normally you would, and the degree you serve that population depends on the degree that you uh, actively staff your school with the proper expertise to, to do that well. So it's a, it's a collaborative decision on admissions on, on special needs for independent schools. For instance, if a student comes in who's blind or has a very strong need of one kind or another, uh, we need to sit down and look at the, the resources of the school and the potential resources parents and school can bring. Do they meet those needs, and, and, and will it look like a good realistic fit or not? Uh, obviously, we can't discriminate entirely based on a, on a um, disability, um, but there would be some collaborative, thoughtful decision-making around that. Right. So we have a narrow range of kids for sure. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I know you've given this a lot of thought, which is why I asked the question, but for those public schools and schools such as the one, the one that you worked with in Baltimore, um, who can't, who don't have the option to be selective mm-hmm. in their student population and, and who have to, you know, who, who, you know, literally under federal law are required to serve every student that comes through their doors regardless of their backgrounds and regardless of their academic ability and, and um, disability status and everything. Um, what? How do those schools best serve the whole child? Right. Well, the reality is that there, almost every public school is, is differentiating and, just, and um, deciding what a, a regular classroom can serve. So the independent school is doing it at the gate in admissions. The public school is not doing it at the gate in admissions, but over time you can bet that they're diagnosing and in deciding what students can, can mainstream and which students cannot. And, of course, appropriately with the goal of, of mainstreaming or having as many kids included in a regular classroom as possible. But nevertheless, with lots of kids uh, put elsewhere in, in a different sort of classroom, for better or for worse, oftentimes for worse. Um, so, I'm sorry, redirect me on that question again uh, in terms of what uh, – rephrase that question if you could about what can public schools – Sure. Do to make sure that they are they are providing a holistic education to every one of their students, whether you know through, as you say, you know differentiated instruction, or if you have a, a student a student population that has a lot of needs and you haven't been able to really you know select students so that you have the diversity that you that would be most beneficial in the classroom. Mm-hmm. How right. can public schools be? Yep. Serving the whole child, right? Well, you've got to decide how how are you going to group kids if you are, and on what axes. And there's you know there's several domains, if you will, of uh, of of serving those kids. So you know, academically, where are they? Uh, Social emotionally, where are they? What needs are they coming with? If you're not thinking about the total picture altogether, you're probably not going to serve kids well. I think it's naive to think that you can have a classroom that can serve every need. You know, the same uh, set of clothing can't fit every one of us. The same education can't fit every one of us. Whether you're talking about different kinds of schools or different classrooms or different kinds of services or differentiating instruction, you know, within one classroom, one way or another, you've got to start with the needs of each individual child. So, you know, that's the dilemma. Uh, You can differentiate 
in a separate school. You can differentiate in a different classroom. You can differentiate within a classroom. Within the classroom, um, you know, you can start by thinking about what are the needs on average of this population that I'm working with. I mean, any great teacher in any school, public or independent, is that's what they're doing day one and before. They're thinking about where are these kids coming from, what have they learned in the past, what have been their life experiences in the past, what are their attitudes and expectations towards school and toward by this school and this classroom, and going from there. If you don't start there, you're not going to go very far. And, uh, you know, if there are needs beyond those that can be served by one teacher with one fairly large group of kids, then we've got to make sure that we're either pushing in with those extras or pulling out or thinking about alternatives. And, uh, you know, those are very dicey um, decisions to make. But, again, just the primary piece of it is, do we understand who we're serving? And I think the, the greatest problem with a lot of uh, public schools in our country is simply we're not really thinking about who we're serving and what needs are they coming to school with. And that accounts for a million prisoners in our prison system uh, with a huge overrepresentation of uh, our most under-resourced communities. So, you know, speaking of the criminal justice system and, um, you know, I've done a lot of work on the school to pr- so-called school-to-prison pipeline and trying to keep black boys out of that school-to-prison pipeline and increasingly black girls and uh, Latino children as well. What types of interventions or strategies do you employ at Burgundy Farm for student discipline? Well, I'll be honest, we're fortunate enough here that because we, for many reasons, both the, the families that we attract who tend to be, uh, they're not all independent school or, or, or the best public school uh, educated families, but on the whole they're stable families and uh, they're fortunate enough in most cases to be on relatively solid footing economically and otherwise. So kids are coming in with more social, cultural capital, if you will, better equipped, happier on average, and coming into an environment that in terms of the C's that I call them of education, uh, the campus, the curriculum, the culture, the community, they're coming into a place that on most measures is extremely welcoming, gentle and concerned and attuned to them individually. So there isn't really a whole lot of opportunity or uh, need for serious disciplinary issues to arise. And when they do arise, again, because of the numbers and the percentages of of situations that we're going to see being so low, we can really afford to take uh, an approach that says, what's this behavior and uh, what's the meaning of it? Where is it coming from? Why are we seeing this behavior? That's a much harder approach to take even in a school like St. Ignatius that I ran in Baltimore. But that is the approach that we took where if a student was sent to me uh, I would get to the root of what's causing this behavior. And if you take that approach, then you're uh, you're dealing with somebody as a human being and, it, and thinking about his or her needs in that moment. And uh, you can address the situation. If it's a rewards and punishment-based behavior program, then you're really not uh, developing any kind of an internal set of controls or compass even um, you simply develop a set of reactions. And a lot of kids come to school 
programmed for different kinds of reactions, and mostly what they're programmed toward is avoid shame and avoid pain. And so they're going to do whatever they can to avoid shame or avoid pain. And in many big public schools, uh, serving kids who've had uh, greater challenges before school in their lives, their first instinct is going to be to um, be combative or lie or uh, uh, avoid um, letting the authority win. And uh, so that's a huge obstacle to take on. Uh, but if you can, if, if you can get to the heart of some of that, then um, you, know, you can make it a safe place for kids. And I think schools, if schools aren't a safe place emotionally for kids, they're not a place of learning. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, a really important point. Uh, you know, and I work with a lot of schools and advise them that we can certainly develop a school discipline. Policy for the school, we can you know put together a code of conduct, but it's impossible to anticipate every situation and every potential um, scenario that might arise. And if you start from this point of I want to, as much as I'm teaching academics, I, I want to be able to teach appropriate behaviors as well in every circumstance, and I want to address the why. So ask the question of why behavior is occurring so that I can be really responsive to the needs of the student. With that as a starting point, I think that that is really the most important for student discipline. Amen. If you think of our classroom as a learning community or a school as a learning community, you know, at, at Burgundy we only have three real rules. I mean, we have a code of conduct of some sort, but there are three expectations. Uh, be nice to everybody, be nice to Burgundy, which means respect the campus and your classroom, and respect learning, those three things. And it's just, you know, the, the first, second, and third, they each are very clear, but the third one, respect learning, that covers a lot of ground. Mm-hmm. If someone else is speaking, respect what they've got to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, don't talk over other people. You know, the second rule, respect the school. You know, don't destroy materials, Don't don't litter. Uh, you know, be nice to everybody. Again, like the third expectation, it's just part of establishing a community. And if we if we look at all behaviors through the prism of just those three simple expectations, we can usually have a pretty productive conversation. So, did you have those same three expectations for the school in Baltimore? Not um, verbatim. Uh, it was, you know, now. I'm an evolving educator, and we had an evolving philosophy. It was a newer school. Uh, initially, our approach was two-pronged. First of all, the philosophy of the school um, was personal care. Mm-hmm. So that encompasses a lot of what we've just been talking about. And attached to that was kind of a no-excuses mantra, which is whatever it takes. And that went for everybody. So for parents and guardians, for faculty, staff, and for kids, the idea was we're going to do whatever it takes, each of us. And what's similar there is there's an implication of a triangle that involves the school staff, the children, and the parents. And we've all got to be connected and working uh, to do our part and willing to do whatever it takes. So it wasn't really exactly the same. I think we had a lot of rules because there were a lot of specific patterns of behavior that for a lot of kids that were established uh, before they came to us and, and um the summer of their fifth grade year that we needed to address. So there would be a lot of signs 
around the school that would address, uh, you know, re- respecting one another, respecting learning, and so forth. But we had a rather detailed uh, handbook. If I were to go back and run a school again of that sort, I think I would boil it down to two or three or four expectations. So, Jeff, what what lessons do you think private schools or independent schools can learn from education reform efforts in public schools? Well, as I think I've said to you before, the first thing is independent schools need to be very careful about uh, how they regard public schools. And there's a lot of stereotyping that goes across uh, school types whether you're talking Catholic and religious-based schools or independent schools, private schools, public schools, county schools versus city schools, et cetera. So I think the first lesson is uh, most of the great teaching and teachers and administrators and ideas now and and always in this country have emanated from and been practiced in public schools. That's just statistically going to be true because of sheer numbers, um, but it's also true because a lot of talent and thought are, uh, have gone into what's going on in, in those schools. Uh, obviously, the volume and the lack of selectivity, as we referred to a little while ago, requires uh, a tremendous amount of thinking uh, in order to uh, to be successful. And, and you know, working small in a lot of ways is, is easier. Not always. There's just some economies of scale to be larger. But the reality is that, on the whole, public schools have a tougher mission. And I think most independent school people appreciate that. What they don't appreciate is um, how much wisdom and how much best practice actually have come to independent schools from public schools. For instance, teacher evaluation and professional growth programs, um, all kinds of differentiation techniques and assessments. You know, necessity is the mother of invention, and the needs are more intense oftentimes in public school. So a lot of uh, a lot of great educational pedagogy and a lot of uh, great administrative practical wisdom and uh, procedures come to independent schools from the public sector, mm-hmm. and then some vice versa as well. Mm-hmm. How do you, in with your parents and families, how do you move beyond tolerance? of diversity and tolerance of one another to get families to really embrace and celebrate one another and celebrate one another's differences at Burgundy. Okay. Well, yeah, tolerance, I hate the word tolerance. I always did. Tolerance to me is one degree above violence. It's saying uh, I will not do physical or emotional, ideological violence to you. So how do you move beyond that? I think you've got to create uh, mediums that feel welcoming, balanced, um, valuing of people so they can come to the table. With students, it's it's not incredibly difficult, even though sometimes the numbers are skewed so that you just have one or a few of a particular um, background of one kind or another. Uh, with adults, it takes a lot more work. Uh, you know, the classroom community, by definition, often is a trusting community. It's one of the most perfect communities in the world when you see a good classroom in any school. And the, at the adult level, uh, people come with a lot more baggage, right? They've lived a whole lifetime. And they may be happy to be at that school but feel completely like an outsider. You know, if I'm an independent school parent coming in, 
uh, for my uh, janitorial career, and I've got my uniform with my name stitched into it, and I've got parents coming in who are uh, well-to-do attorneys or business owners, people I might even have to work for, uh, the type I might have to work for in the outside world. How do you create a safe space for everybody to come in with attitudes that feel um, respectful and mutual? Uh, so understanding why we're there together, creating community by oftentimes socializing it over food, um, problem-solving, working. You know, at um, St. Ignatius and here at Burgundy, we have a lot of sweat equity from parents, expected. So we're all, if we're all expected to contribute and we know that the success of the school depends upon all of our involvement as adults together, then we're rolling up our sleeves together. And then again, when we're breaking bread together, we're talking about school challenges together, we're on a relatively even or more even playing field. But it's all about familiarity and trust uh, eventually leading to a sense of community. And uh, you sometimes have to be creative. We've shown some films, uh, read things together, uh, find ways to capture people in the same room or the same experience and let them build some bridges. Jeff Sindler is the head of school at Burgundy Farm Country Day School in Virginia. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Jeff. Uh, it's my pleasure. I feel like we scratched the surface on some we of these did. great topics. But uh, uh, I love what you're doing, and um, uh, any way I can be involved in any conversation that breathes a little bit more understanding, uh, I'm delighted to participate. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are now officially certified know-it-alls about private schools and where they fit in the larger school reform conversation. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.